Welcome to MedHeads, the weekly show that brings a biopsychosocial focus to issues of the day, along with special guests who will showcase their expertise and enthusiasm about their field of practice. Your host, Dr. Fergal Armstrong. Hello everyone, my name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong and welcome to MedHeads. And today we have with us Dr. Andrew Rees. Hello Andrew, how are you? I'm very well, thank you Fergal. Nice to see you again. So, I thought we'd continue our analysis of cases, and I believe that you have a case to discuss today. Yeah, so I've got a case of a man in his 50s. Uh, he uh, served his nation with distinction in some overseas theatres, um, and uh, now presents trying to work through some issues to do with chronic pain. Right. That's an interesting one. Okay, so... Uh... <laughs> Let's uh, let, let's tease some of these issues out. So the first thing that comes to my mind is is PTSD and the the role that trauma and stress have on the experience of chronic pain. So do you think he's got the PTSD? Well, I think he does have, and uh, we have a little bit of a chat about some of his background. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, he's got a few issues that compound his trauma. Because mm -hmm. it's not just his uh, trauma of service. He actually entered the service to escape a situation where he was subjected to uh, child abuse. Right. right. So then he's entered the military, and uh, in the military he's suffered uh, as a result of uh, combat trauma. Right. And his chronic pain, are they related to his wounds from combat trauma? Uh, not particularly, funnily enough. Um, the Army has a marvellous record of getting fit young men, loading them with uh, packs and equipment and making them jump off perfectly good trucks. Right. Uh, for this reason, his knees are not in great shape and he's got uh, ongoing problems with his lumbar spine. Right. So he's a 50-year-old man with effectively degenerative joint disease affecting both knees and his spine with a background of childhood trauma, combat trauma, and uh, chronic pain. Is there any addiction involved in this issue? In this Not case? so much. Uh, he is using substantial amounts of prescribed substances, but there's no indication that he's uh, going off script uh, right. with the agreements that he's come to with his uh, general practitioners, pain specialists, and so on. Right. So what is his medication load? At the moment, he's on uh, oxycodone, 40 milligrams twice a day, uh, which he's taking as Tarjan. Um, and he's on uh, a variety of benzodiazepines, unfortunately. He's got uh, uh, at least 15, but perhaps 30 milligrams of oxazepam. He's got some PRN uh, diazepam in there. It's scripted as five uh, milligrams three times a day. Occasionally he takes a, a 10, but it's not a, a big habit on his part. And then he's got some temazepam to help him sleep. So we're talking at least a benzodiazepine diazepam equivalent of about 20 milligrams a day. And we're talking about oxycodone, 80 milligrams daily with an OMED of 120. Mm. So does he have any, uh, any other risk factors for cardiorespiratory issues? Like, does he have cardiac issues, respiratory issues? Is he overweight? Does he have sleep apnea? He certainly hasn't presented with cardiac issues uh, as yet. Uh, mm -hmm. He smokes a fair bit. Right. Um, smoke? Uh, just, just tobacco. Um, 
and probably 20 to 30 cigarettes a day. Right. Uh, he's a little bit overweight, but I wouldn't describe him as being horribly obese. Right. Uh, my estimate uh, would be that he's got a BMI of about 28. Right. So we're pushing it above normal, but not the worst we've ever seen. Mm. What does he do for a living? What's his social context? Uh, not a lot. Right. Why, why is that? Uh, he finds himself unable to work. Um, the the post-traumatic stress disorder leads to him having uh, some explosive, uh, occasional dissociative episodes. Um, he uh, likes to keep to himself, tends to have a bit of a, a negative uh, view of other people. Right, right. And does he have any family? Is he is he living on his own? He does have a partner. Mm. Well, what does she do? Um, she works um, full-time. She's a, a, quite an understanding lady. He's never acted in a way uh, toward her that has made her feel frightened. Mm. Right. And are there any forensic issues? Is he... Not for him. Not for him. He, he does have um, some children, which until we've started working together, he's been uh, alienated from. Right. And do we know why that might be? It's not entirely clear. Right. So the relationship that he's in at the moment is his second main relationship. Is that right? It's not his first. It's certainly not his first. Yeah, right. Okay. And I suppose here's the big question. What do you think his needs are? Well, his needs are probably many. Um, I'd be concerned about uh, not having fulfilment of his needs for engagement in something purposeful, uh, that uh, he's probably still dealing with trauma and therefore doesn't have that sense of uh, protection about him. He doesn't have sustenance needs as such. He's got a secure place to live and uh, he's got a military pension. He's got a spouse who's earning uh, not a large amount of money, but they are, relatively speaking, comfortable. Um, uh, there are probably a great many other issues, uh, uh, you know, affection, the, the ability to uh, have relationships with people other than his very understanding spouse uh, is limited, I think. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't feel that he feels that he has very much to pass on to the next generation by way of legacy. So that's transcendence. Let's talk about, let's go through the spew craft and mnemonic. So mm. sustenance, we've touched on, that's not really an issue. Protection could be an issue for him. Mm -hmm. Engagement, I, I'm, what I'm hearing is this is someone who doesn't engage with others, other people, other services. He doesn't really engage with purposeful activity, but um, as, as things unfold, I think we'll, we'll see some things change. Right. Um, he's, he's not a silly person. Um, he he uh, he, he reads reasonably widely and uh, you know, he's not that isolated from coming to understand things about himself. Um, he uh, achieved a reasonable rank in his service. Um, uh, um, what else? Creativity. Uh, not that I've explored with him uh, to date. I haven't sort of heard from him any... Uh, things relating to his ability to create something, get his hands on something, make things. 
Um, certainly plenty of uh, idleness uh, in terms of not being engaged in things, but maybe not that kind of... Does he have appropriate rest? Yeah, yeah, yeah. probably not a, a degree of appropriate rest. He, yeah. His uh, diurnal rhythm's a, a little bit disturbed. I think he, yeah. he can sleep in and then spend the night either tossing or turning or pacing the house, those sorts yeah. of things. Yeah. Um, and what about freedom? Uh, freedom. I, I think he feels trapped. Yeah. In what way uh, do you I, think he feels trapped? Well, he's he's sort of isolated um, and doesn't feel that he can um, get to be with the people he wants to be with. Um, that, that's a bit of a an up in the air topic. You know, he's isolating himself on the one hand, and somewhat paradoxically, he's sort of feeling isolated. Yeah. So, who do you think his tribe is? Oh well, you know, I, I he might have one in the return services people, but I'm not sure that that that's particularly true for him. Um, probably he's just got his uh, his spouse. That, that's really all he's got at the moment. I don't think he's truly identified who his mob, his tribe, his family is mm. right now. Why do you think that might be? Uh, a bit hard to know quite why. Mm. Um, I, I suppose it may well be that he fears going to be with, for example, men and women that he served with simply because he doesn't want to relive things. Uh, there could be a, a great variety of reasons. What, what I wanted to particularly talk about was, in this case, was... Uh, an approach that was taken um, that had some success. Okay, so we start off by talking about what his best hopes are and what he really wants to do is get back in contact with one of his children. Uh, a, uh, just for the purpose of confidentiality, we're not going to particularly say who that person is, but he wants to get back in contact with this person. Uh, he has actually quite great personal admiration for from them or for them. Uh, and so that's really his best hope, is that he wants to be in a place where he can make good contact and, and have a, a really uh, valuable and useful time with that uh, child. So your ch his child is going to form part of his tribe, is that right? His well, that, that I dare say might be the eventual result, yeah. but we, you know, my exploration is, you know, what are your best hopes of the work that we'll do together today? And right. uh, what he's looking to do, in fact, what's precious to him is he wants to re-establish this relationship. And he recognises there are a few things that are getting in the way of that. So we're going to talk about thing with him about what are his strengths, what does he bring to this particular situation, and, uh, and for him to build in detail... Uh, a picture, a mental picture on his own behalf of what his preferred future is going to look like. And so he starts to list off some of these things. So we talk about uh, what, what does he think he's good at and what does his wife think he's good at. And he describes his organisation skills, his loyalty, his, uh, uh, his dutifulness, um, and so on. Uh, there are probably many, many uh, positive things about him that he lists off. 
Um, but he's perhaps a little bit modest about it. And then I ask, well, what would your wife say that you're good at? And um, he reflects on, on those things as well. Um, and uh, he, he speaks of you know, how, how he can be very determined. That if he sets his mind on doing a thing, he will achieve it. And what would your child think that you're good at? And he gives a version of those things as well. So we've now got an inventory of some great fundamentals of his solving his own situation. And then we move on to asking him about, well, if a miracle happened sometime tonight and you woke up in the morning, what would be the first clue that you had that the miracle had happened? And what did he and, say? Uh, well, he, he said he wouldn't use as many of his medicines. Right. So for him, getting off his medication is part of his future, yeah? Yeah. And he wouldn't smoke as much. He might even give up. Mm. He'd certainly get out and do some exercise. Right. Right. To what, to what extent does his past history of abuse influence his sense of tribe? Well, it probably does to, a, to quite a significant uh, level, simply because issues of trust and those sorts of things. But what I find in this man as I work with him is that because he's now focused on uh, the, the preferred future that he's negotiating for himself, um, those sorts of things fade into the background in terms of how relevant they are to his recovery. And in fact, uh, within a few weeks, he's substantially reduced his medications. He's rarely using any kind of benzodiazepine. He's driven this process entirely himself. He's talking to me about um, further reducing and stopping his opiates. He feels that they're not helping him at all. Um, mm. And so we're just slowly weaning that. Uh, and he started to take steps to get back in contact with his uh, child, which he does in due course. And yeah. he has a very uh, favorable response from that child. Uh, and uh, he comes back reporting that he just plain feels better. So this, I mean, this story highlights a number of issues, but what I'm hearing first and foremost is that when people discover their purpose in life, they are able to escape to a certain extent their reliance on substances, or even albeit prescribed substances. And I'm, I'm very interested to hear your views on how this man's pain has changed as a result of him having found his purpose, and as a result of which he's now, you're, you're saying he's now able to reduce his opioid load. What, what yeah. would you say about that issue? Well, he doesn't see that as being central to his existence. He's no longer chasing that as an issue. Whereas previously he was. Yeah. So would it be fair to say then that, okay, I'm, I'm, perhaps I'm extrapolating from one case to generalizing far too quickly, but would it be fair to say that opioid deprescribing, in some, to some extent at least, is dependent on patients finding their purpose in life? I think that can be very true mm. for quite a number of patients. Right. Uh, it, it may well be that they have found their purpose. Uh, mm. And other things are stymieing them. Sometimes, mm -hmm. of course, like this man, there's probably a degree of hyperalgesia from his uh, load 
of uh, opiates. He's well over the hundred, isn't he? At one hundred and twenty. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so he it is going to. He is going to feel better if he gets off his opioids. I mean, that that's a message that I find it challenging to deliver to some patients. Is mm -hmm. that actually, you think your opioids are helping your pain? Well, actually, I feel that if you get off your opioids, your pain would be helped more. I mean, do you, do you struggle with that ever, or do you have issues with that communication? Uh, well, we have to sort of waltz around the topic a little bit from time to time. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the time, what I've managed to do is persuade my patients to give it a go. I reassure mm. them that if they need to go back on their opiates, uh, then they, you know, they can always go back. Well, I won't be looking to have them go higher, yeah. but... Uh, I'm happy for them to return to their previously prescribed dose. And then we talk about the possibility of, for example, going from oxycodone to buprenorphine uh, as a patch, which I find very advantageous because as it's a partial agonist, um, they th have greater mental clarity. So that, that can be useful. Um, I've tried uh, other... Uh, medications to pentadol um, I, I seem to have the the couple of patients that i've shifted across to to pentadol seem to suddenly become very dependent and um, uh, describing um, running out of medicines at seven o'clock in the morning and going to the pharmacy and bashing on the door of the pharmacist and making the pharmacist open the door hours before uh, opening mm. time um, Though that that seems to be a, a bit of a picture I get from that, so I'm a bit concerned about that. But it might just be one individual, I don't know, or two individuals. Mm. Um, so, but I was in, I was interested to hear what you're saying about uh, about mental clarity. Mm. That that coming off the opioids, or at least rotating from one opioid to buprenorphine, improved mental clarity. But you know, remember we've got a gentleman who's traumatized with symptoms of PTSD who's also using hypnosedatives in the form of uh, benzodiazepines, diazepam, he surely is not, I mean, you know, how would mental clarity affect his symptomatology from the PTSD point of view? Uh, you know, and how do you tie that up with his desire to come off the opioids to achieve more mental clarity? Well, the problem for somebody with PTSD is that it's not that they, rem they ever really truly remember their trauma but rather they live it, relive it. Mm. Uh, because it's not being properly stored away in their memory processes, it's basically racing up and down around the outside of their chronology, their life chronology. Uh, and so at some point there's got to be this, uh, in a way, acceptance of the fact that those events occurred and uh, they, they have to be allowed to find their place in that individual's chronology of life mm. um, and then once that happens that they can be dealt with that's the idea behind things like prolonged exposure therapy um, to some extent uh, some of the trauma work done in it with uh, acceptance and commitment therapy of various styles um, uh, EMDR uh, which uh, uses evoked brain p potentials I think uh, but it's it's getting the person's eyes to move left and right um, whilst uh, recounting the events. Um, 
it's not a particular technique that I'm familiar with, but I understand that it has quite a bit of success. All of these things require a degree of mental clarity and being uh, blunted and having that uh, everything sort of blurred um, interferes. Um, so as, as it turns out, uh, this person just simply focusing on where they wanted to go. You know, one of the problems that I personally have with helping people with trauma is that their uh, reliving of the trauma ha mm -hmm. can have quite a severe effect on my own uh, mental health. Mm -hmm. and, and how do you deal with that? Well, refer them on to somebody else if that's what's required. Um, obviously, you know, I want to look after them, but at the same time, I'm not going to be any good if I find myself traumatized by their accounts. Whereas by focusing on this negotiated or negotiable hoped for future, which they describe in detail, in the light of all of their significant personal strengths, um, they just simply move on and grow. As do we. Indeed. And then so, all those things slot in. So, Andrew, <laughs> far too quickly we've run out of time. But if I could just summarise, what I'm hearing is that hope actually opens the door to uh, management of mental, mental issues, management of PTSD, management of chronic pain, and provides a springboard from which we can engage in de-prescribing. I look forward to the next time we chat. Andrew Reese. thank you very much. Thank you, Fergal. That's all for today's MedHead show. My name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong. Thanks for watching, and we'll see you next time.